Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Of this treatise, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life by Shanti Deva, who lived 8th century um, and uh, was. It's a treatise on being, uh, on, on living the Dharma, not just for yourself, but for everyone. And it is, as I said last week, the Dalai Lama said, every, anything he knows, everything he knows about compassion, he learned from this text. And I, those who weren't here last week, uh, I mentioned I was in Madison, uh, Wisconsin, last month with His Holiness and a few thousand people, and he was teaching. Uh, it wasn't just the two of us, and he was he was teaching from uh, from Shanti Dave, and I thought I'd uh, I'd go in. Uh, go in deeper into the into the teachings and do a series. It's the best way to learn about something is to teach it in depth. And um, last week I was using this translation, Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, by Alan Wallace and Vesna Wallace. That was what we were given at the teachings. There's also, oh, I don't have it with me, uh, a flash of lightning in the Dark Summer Night, I think it's called, is another of the Dalai Lama's teachings on Shanti Deva. But in the interim, I got this book that I highly recommend that I'll probably be using as the main resource. It's so good. Um, Pema Chodron's commentary, it gives the whole treatise in a really good translation and her commentary on, uh, on the Shanti Deva text. It's called No Time to Lose. Timely um, Guide to the Way of the Bodhisattva. So there's ten chapters, as mentioned last week. Chapter one, which we went over, is the benefits of bodhicitta. And for those who weren't here last week, bodhi, bodhi means awakened, citta, heart or mind, heart, mind, slash, same same translation, in, same word in, uh, in uh, Sanskrit. And it is the, 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 the seed of awakening, the awakened heart or the awakened mind, or the enlightened heart or enlightened mind. And it is the, the aspiration to awaken not just for yourself, but to completely find the deepest liberation so that you can be of benefit to others, which is a tremendously uh, inspiring seed that you plant for practice. And I, I'll just quickly mention the, the benefits of bodhicitta that we talked about last week. When you have that aspiration, it moves you from the self-centeredness of practice. Oh, I'm going to do this so I can get out of my misery and see you later, guys. To, I want to find the deepest truth so that I can include all beings in my practice. When you are in that spirit of generosity and wanting to do it out of compassion, then 
it really softens the heart. It gives juice to the whole practice. It's not this cerebral kind of inquiry. Yes, I'll be mindful, and then I'll see, and then I can let go, and uh, I'll be peaceful. There's a moistness, a richness in that expression of the generous and compassionate heart. Having that aspiration also keeps us going when times are hard. You know, rather than, oh, who cares, I'll just throw in the towel. You've got a bigger picture here. And so when you go through the hard times, this is part of your bodhisattva training. The bodhicitta is the aspiration to be a bodhisattva, to walk the path of somebody who is is committed to relieving suffering in the world for all, including all. So when you're going through the hard times, that's part of your bodhisattva training. Oh, I can learn more and more about suffering the hard way so that I can really understand and be there for others when they're going through the hard times. And you know that's usually how it works when you're around somebody who you truly get can be there with you, can meet there, can meet you where you are. Generally, it's because they know what suffering is like. And so anytime you're going through a hard period, this is part of your gift to everybody if you have this kind of aspiration. And it keeps you going through those hard times. It also keeps you going through the times when things are really groovy in practice. Wow. I think I got it. That's always a dangerous thought. Watch out. Ah. Ah, How beautiful. I can just kind of hang out and coast here for a while because, you know, maybe for a lifetime or two, you know, and I'll pick it up later on. No, if you've got a commitment to just go all the way for the sake of others, you're not going to be complacent. Just relax. There's always more to do until you're fully cooked and there's no more self around. You keep on going for the welfare of all. So that's the benefits of, of Bodhicitta. This chapter is, um, as I said, preparing the ground. And what it does is you're preparing yourself for to be the optimal soil for that seed of awakening to be planted in. You know, you like like any. I, I've never been a farmer, you know, but I'm from I'm from the big city, so I don't know. But I'm told that they they till the soil. They you you kind of have to prepare it just like you would a plant. You know, you have good soil, and that plant is going to go as rich and vibrant as as it can. In the same way, you prepare your heart and you prepare your whole being for the most nourishing environment for that seed of awakening to be planted in. And this chapter is the start of this preparation. 
there are seven different practices to prepare the heart and mind for bodhicitta, for the awakened state. This chapter covers three of them. The next chapter covers the other four. So these first three chapters are all about bodhicitta and generating this aspiration. It's a, it, this, another way to look at this whole sequence is it goes through the six perfections, six paramis in Tibetan Buddhism, the first one being generosity. And these first three chapters are all about cultivating a generous heart. Then going through the other paramis. And generosity is the first parami or paramita in, uh, in uh, Theravadan Buddhism as well. There's ten paramis in, in, uh, in Theravadan Buddhism, and generosity is the first. Generosity, then virtue, and then uh, patience, and then effort, and in the Tibetan tradition, then it's mindfulness, uh, sorry, meditation and wisdom. So that's what we're going to be on tonight, these this three practices in that generosity field of preparing heart and mind. And I'll, what I want to do is read, uh, see, I don't want it to be just a reading, but I want you to get a flavor and actually, you know, might as well hear what Shantideva has to say even more than what I have to say. Uh, so I want to read some and comment from, uh, from time to time. I should let you know if this guy, Shantideva, didn't pull any punches. He was going for it, and some of it reads like, um, at least the translations, uh, kind of a, a bit like fire and brimstone in some ways. And in this particular chapter, besides the offerings, that prepare the heart is also, this chapter has to do with confessions of our misdeeds. So, um, uh, and Pema Chodron has a beautiful explanation of some of the, the um, um, more, what would seem like fundamentalist uh, takes on our transgressions, but uh, we could just explore it together. So it starts out with offerings, and there are three offerings, no, two offerings, and what, what offerings do you know when you when you see a, um, a, a, a lama or rinpoche, where you have you have the good fortune of going to uh, of having being up close with the Dalai Lama, then you give a scarf, you give a kata to them. It's called you give the offering, then they usually give it back to you, and you can then wear it and say, "Oh, that was blessed by the Dalai Lama." But offering is a very traditional. Thing that you do to um, a great teacher, a great being. And what it does, these first offerings are to the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. What offerings 
when we are in that mode of giving that when we it opens our heart it keeps us it gets us out of our self-centeredness that giving counteracts selfishness and when you offer it to the buddhas and bodhisattvas you uh, are experiencing the devotional aspect of heart and when you're offering to those who are in suffering you are developing your compassion so here I'll just read a little bit starts out to the Buddhas those thus gone and to the sacred law it's the Dharma immaculate supreme and rare and to the Buddha's offspring, that's the, the Sangha, oceans of good qualities, that I might gain this precious attitude, I make a perfect offering. He's, he's so heartfelt, Shantideva. I offer, this is what he offers, I offer every fruit and flower and every kind of healing medicine and all the precious things the world affords with all pure waters of refreshment. Every mountain, rich and filled with jewels, all sweet and lonely forest groves, the trees of heaven garlanded with blossom and branches heavy laden with their fruit. This is the thing, this is what he's offering. The mountains, the trees of heaven, the perfume fragrance of the realm of gods and men, all incense, wishing trees, and trees of gems, all crops that grow without the tiller's care, and every sumptuous object worthy to be offered. Lakes and mirrors adorned with lotuses, all plaintive with the sweet voice cries of water birds, and lovely to the eyes, and all things wild and free, stretching to the boundless limits of the sky, I hold them all before my mind and to the supreme Buddhas and their heirs will make a perfect gift of them. Oh, think of me with love, compassionate lords, sacred objects of my prayers, accept these offerings. For I am empty-handed, destitute of merit. I have no other wealth. But you, protectors, you whose thoughts are for the good of others, in your great power, Accept this for my sake. So, how is it? I mean, here he is making an offering of mountains and flowers and you know things that belong to everybody. But if you if you see that this is all we have to offer, Alan not only all of these things, but the enjoyment of them. I'm offering all these things that delight me so much instead of it saying, oh, I love this and this is mine, I can't get enough of it. I'm offering it all to you. It's the most beautiful thing, this, this natural world, and this is, I'm so appreciative and, um, and grateful for it. This, I'm offering you my gratitude for all of life. Because I don't have anything else. Hmm. And then finally, he offers himself. The Buddhas and their Bodhisattva children, I offer them myself. 
through my throughout my lives, supreme courageous ones, accept me totally, for with devotion I will be your servant. For if you will accept me, I will be a benefit to all and freed from fear. I'll go beyond the evils of my past and ever after turn my face from them. So, I'd like, as I go through this, we could just play around with this a little bit together so it's not just a theoretical treatise. Just uh, close your eyes for a minute. Let's practice it together. All the things of the world that you delight in, that you're grateful for, just imagine that they've been gifts to you from life. They are. And just imagine offering these precious gifts that have been so generously bestowed on you, offering them to the purest beings, purest to the divine energy, however you conceive it, offering it back. What could you offer from your heart that you really treasure just imagine or access that place that so loves the Dharma or life that you want to just offer back in gratitude. See if you can just get in touch in whatever level possible from a sincere place in your heart. Because that's the secret. Just imagine going through your day with that spirit of gratitude, offering up all the gifts that you have given to the divine so you might deeper and deeper and open to the truth. Then the next part of this offering is uh, visualizations. It's one thing to have an idea, I'll offer this and this, and then, as you might know, Tibetan practices are replete with visualizations. The mind can create anything, and if you use it to your benefit, it can access even more deeply the spirit of generosity and offering. So here's a bit of the visualizations. Mm. A bathing chamber, excellently fragrant. You, you might actually get, see if you can um, imagine this. If you like, you can do it with your eyes closed, and, uh, uh, or, or as you like, open your eyes. A bathing chamber, excellently fragrant, with floors of crystal, radiant and clear, 
with graceful pillars shimmering with gems, all hung about with gleaming canopies of pearls. There, the blissful Buddhas and their heirs, I'll bathe with many a precious vase. A brim with water, sweet and pleasant, all to frequent strains of melody and song, with cloths of unexampled quality and with peerless perfume towels, I will dry them and offer splendid scented clothes, well dyed and of surpassing excellence, with different garments, light and supple, and a hundred beautiful adornments, I will grace sublime Samantabhadra, that's the bodhisattva associated with boundless generosity, Manjugosha, Manjushriva, associated with wisdom, and Lokeshvara, Avalokiteshvara, who's the embodiment of compassion, I will grace them sublime and their kin. And with sumptuous fragrance that pervades a thousand million worlds, I will anoint the bodies of the Buddhas, light and gleaming bright, like pure and burnished gold. I will place before the Buddha, perfect object of my worship, flowers like the lotus and the mandarava, upala and other scented blossoms, worked and twined in lovely scented gardens. I will offer swelling clouds of incense, whose ambient perfume ravishes the mind in various foods of every kind of drink and drink. All delicacies worthy of the gods. I will offer precious lamps, all perfectly contrived as golden lotuses, a bed of flower, a flower petals scattering upon the level incense-sprinkled ground. So that kind of visualization really connects you with the the amazing beauty that's available in life that the mind can conjure up. I give this to and I bathe you and I dry you. Each of these, by the way, has its own connotation. Uh, offering of flowers is uh, flowers like the lotus, offering of love and compassion. And incense is offering discipline. So they all have their own um, connection. Precious lamps is uh, offering of light and wisdom. And then offering for harmonious community. I will offer palaces immense and resonant with song, all decked with precious pearls and pendant gems, glowing treasures fit to ornament the amplitude of space. All this I offer to the loving bodhisattvas. Precious parasols adorned with golden shafts and bordered all around with few fringes, upright, well-proportioned, pleasing to the eye. Again, all this I give to all the Buddhas. May a multitude of other offerings, accompanied by music sweet to hear, be made in great successive clouds to soothe the sufferings of living beings. When the rains of flowers, every precious thing fall down in an unceasing stream upon the jewels of sacred dharma, the triple gem, and all supports for offering. Triple gem, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And then finally, I'll offer my practice. 
Just as Manjugosho, gentle and melodious, made offerings to all the conquerors, likewise I will make oblation to the Buddhas and the Bodhisattva children. I will offer prayers by every way and means to these vast oceans of good qualities. May clouds of tuneful praise descend unceasingly before them. So that softens the heart of it as you're so generous. As you're so there you can feel the devotion in in the words. Then he goes one step more. Then the next there's seven practices and there are three in uh, in this chapter as I say. The first is the offerings uh, of of these images in the mind. Then the next level of offering is prostration. Your your whole body is put into play. Prostration, you know, we do, we do our, our bows, sometimes people bow at the end of the sitting. If you, um, if you go into a Buddha hall, uh, many monastics and, and many people will bow three times into the ground. And prostration is a kind of, it's an interesting thing. I remember the first time you know, I saw people frustrating and thought, well, I don't know if I can go that far. I mean, what is that all about? But there's a real reverence that comes when you put your whole body into it. And it's, it's quite lovely. Jack Cornfield talks about when he first went to uh, Ajahn Chah's monastery and he had a real hard time bowing, especially when he had he was the new monk in the monastery and you have to bow to everybody who is your senior. So that means he was spending his whole day bowing and he had a lot of resistance at the beginning. And then he said after a while it just became this practice, this beautiful um, offering of generosity and he said it got to the point if it moved I bowed. And, uh, <laughs> it's a great way to go through through your day if you really mean it. Imagine how it affects one's conceit or arrogance. It's like really a practice in humility. And in the Tibetan practices, if you are going to get into serious Tibetan teachings and practices, you go through preliminary practices. The preliminary practices are 100,000 prostrations. You kind of count them. You don't do it all at once. You kind of count them and you, you know, okay, up to 3,500, you know, up to next month, you know. 5,800, and you, you're doing it for a while. 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mantra recitations, 100,000 visualizations, and, uh, and mudras. So you're, this is preparing the ground that we do these days as well. When you're prostrating, there's a veneration. It, it makes you extremely open and uh, opens up your compassion because you start to feel the qualities of the being that you're 
venerating or bowing to. We have a, uh, in, in my house, we have a, a tanka over the, the fireplace of white tara. There's a beautiful tanka uh, 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 that we fell in love with. And uh, as I was reading this this week, talking about veneration and bowing, I thought, gosh, I know as much as I can about white tara. So I have this book that has all these explanations. And Jane and I sat down and we just read about the, who white tara is. And uh, as we got more in touch with all of her qualities and then I sit before it. Now I'm, as I bow to it, bow to her, I'm bowing to those qualities. And in bowing to it and opening to those qualities, it's like you're opening to those qualities right inside your own heart. Oh, I really value compassion and protection and this uh, deep care for the welfare of all, eyes that can see and, and hear and see all the suffering in the world. And as we do that, it also it opens us up to receive the blessings, because in that experience of devotion, there's no room for contraction. We open up our heart. And as Sokni Rinpoche says, when you feel that devotion to the lineage or whoever, your, your teachers, then it's like the, the lineage and all the blessings of the Dharma can enter you because you're so open. And that's where transmission can happen. It's not because whatever teacher is uh, that, that you might be inspired by is... Is, has all the answers. It's that you're so open you can hear the truth. And then there's that connection that can sometimes happen. So, it's also said that we overcome our resistance and surrender our neurotic habits as we, as we prostrate. Here's a little bit about frustrations. To the Buddhas of the past, the present, and, the, and all future time, and to the doctrine, the Dharma, and sublime assembly, the Sangha, with bodies many as the grains of dust upon the ground, I will prostrate and bow. To shrines and all supports of bodhicitta, I bow down. All abbots who transmit the vows, all learned masters, and all the noble ones who practice the Dharma, until the essence of enlightenment is reached, I go for refuge to the Buddhas, and I also take refuge in the doctrine and all the hosts of bodhisattvas. To them who are the sovereigns of great mercy, I press my palms together, praying thus, in this and all my other lifetimes, wandering in around without beginning, blindly, have brought forth wickedness, inciting others to commit the same. Now here's where it gets into the next piece of my confessions. I have taken pleasure in such evil. Tricked and overmastered by my ignorance, now I see the blame of it and in my heart. Oh, great protectors, I declare. Now he's getting into the next preparing the ground of seeing our 
where we've fallen short. And the word evil is used, the word, in some translations, sin is used. It's kind of like, oh gosh, I, I thought that was, the, that was the Puritans on Plymouth uh, Rock. Well, he's, he's talking about really seeing honestly how you've fallen short not to feel, not to blame yourself, not to feel guilty, but in the declaring of it, you, it's the first step towards being free. And in the declaring and saying, yes, I have work to do, you let go of your arrogance and you, again, go deep in your humility and say, I want all the support I can get. I am committing myself to facing in the direction of deeper and deeper awakening. And they make the point, Pema Chodron makes the point, besides getting in touch with your own um, failings, that it can be really helpful to share with somebody when you miss the mark. That's what the word sin actually means. Missing the mark. It's not, oh, you're such an awful person. You've just missed the truth. You've missed where truth really is out of confusion, out of ignorance. And so when you honestly can name that, it's like you're saying, I want to get back to hitting the mark to being where real happiness, being aligned with where real happiness lies. And when you when you don't, there's a place inside in the Theravadan practice, in the Theravadan teachings, it's called Hirian Otapan. We've talked about this before. This place inside our our moral compass where we feel off if we've done something not quite right, or we feel um, ashamed or embarrassed or dreading that others will find out. And when you can express that to someone, there's a relief that happens, isn't there? Why is that? Have you ever thought why it is? Any idea? Yes. The more we hide them, the harder, the more they stay with us, and the harder it is to release them. And in just sharing it with somebody who you respect, you don't have to put that burden inside of you. So Shanti Deva is is sharing that with the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of infinite compassion. interesting just, just recently it's something that I, I needed to just check out inside where my I had this coming from where my motives were and uh, put it inside for a while and then I said I need to talk to somebody about this and as soon as I talked to him I just needed to get through it in myself and um, I really recommend if you're feeling at all oh, 
disturbed by anything that you might have done or you're wondering about your motives and sometimes there's mixed motives. As you talk things out to somebody in one house, there's a great relief in there. So this is the confessional part. As Trungpa Rinpoche says, instead of sin, he uses laying aside our neurotic crimes. Zigger Kuntrell, who's Panda uh, Children's main teacher these days, talks about positive sadness. Where, and it is also the, the, uh, the phrase in the teachings, wise remorse, or wise reflection. Another phrase, open-hearted tenderness of regret. You can, it's so different than, oh, I, I have sinned and I'm awful and uh, maybe I'll be saved. It's, oh, I missed the mark. I don't want to do that. It's a fresh start. Four powers of confession that I mentioned. The recognition of misdeeds, very positive sadness. The reliance on basic wisdom, that is, when you um, bow or pray to Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, God, Jesus, whoever it is for you, you uh, that you acted unskillfully and out of ignorance. It's like you're remembering, you're aligning with the wiser paradigm. And then remedial action is another another aspect of confession. That is making amends if you've done something wrong. And uh, there's a beautiful example here in, uh, in Pema's book about Thich Nhat Hanh working with an American veteran of the uh, Vietnam War who could not shake his overwhelming guilt for having killed innocent bystanders. Thich Nhat Hanh does a lot of um, veterans retreats. For him, for this veteran, the healing action was to return to Vietnam and spend time helping people in distress. It reminds me, if you ever saw the movie Gandhi, it's the most poignant moment in there where this, this man goes to Gandhi who is he's killed these um, Muslims, Muslims, and um, and he says, what can I do? My, my heart is so heavy. I'm just tormented all, all the time. And Gandhi says, you go and, uh, and work with the Muslims. I think he said, adopt a Muslim child. And uh, you care for him as your own son. And, yeah, he had lost his son. Maybe that's what made him go crazy. So you adopt a Muslim child. And you care for him as your own. That's the rule. It's never too late. And then the, the, the fourth power of confession, resolve to do our best to change, to move from being bad to basically good. Okay, I'm going to do it a different way, just straight out of the Buddhist teachings as well. Then he, Shantideva says, okay, uh, he really ups, ups the ante, where he starts talking and reflecting about death. 
we don't have much time here. And that's where he he says, he looks at the way things are. Before my evil has been cleansed away, it may be that my death will come to me. And so that, so that come what may, I might be freed. I pray you, quickly grant me your protection. The wanton lord of death, we can't predict. And life's tasks done or still to do, we cannot stay. And whether ill or well, we cannot trust our lives, our fleeting momentary lives. And we must pass away, forsaking all. But I, devoid of understanding, have forsake a friend and foe alike, provoked and brought about so many evils and deeds. My enemies at length will cease to be, and my friends and I myself will cease to be, and all is likewise destined for destruction. All that I possess and use is like the fleeting vision of a dream. It fades into the realms of memory, and fading will be seen no more. And even in the brief course of this present life, so many friends and foes have passed away, because of whom the evils I have done still lie unbearable before me. The thought came never to my mind that I too am a brief and passing thing, and so through hatred, lust, and ignorance, I've been the cause of many evils. Never halting, night and day, my life is slipping, slipping by, and nothing that has passed can be regained. And what but death could be my destiny? There I'll be prostrate upon my bed, and all around the ones I know and love, but I alone shall be the one to feel the cutting of the thread of life. And when the vanguard of the deadly king has gripped me, what can help me will be my friend, what help to me will be my friends or kin? The only goodness gained in life will help me. This, alas, is what I shrugged away. So, when you reflect on death, it really does make you want to clean up your act, doesn't it? Because there you are at the end of your life. What do you want to look back on your life and see? To die with no regrets. Well, in some ways, you'd say all of practice, Dharma practice, is about learning and preparing for that moment of death. To die, knowing you, knowing you did it well, is a, is a really good kind of thing. Have a children, she says, uh, when my children were teenagers, I took them to meet the 16th Karmapa. Heavy, heavy dude. He was amazing. And now there's the 17th Karmapa. He's like 20, 20, 20. He's the real deal, too. Mm-hmm. 
he's going to be somebody who likes to be fancy. Anyway. anyway, when my children were teenagers, I took them to meet the 16th Karmapa. As they weren't bar- as they weren't Buddhists, I asked His Holiness to say something that didn't require any understanding of the Dharma. Without hesitation, he told them, "You are going to die." <laughs> Didn't mince words. Yeah. But listen, there's more. You are going to die, and when you do, you will take nothing with you but your state of mind. Yeah. So that reflection of death, as Castaneda says, having death over your left shoulder, or knowing impermanence, how it can all end. How do you want to live your life? My friend Bonnie teaches these year-to-live groups. And when you really see, and I've done one in one of the together, when you see, oh, your time is limited, you really want to make the most of this life. Then it goes into, I think we'll skip the, uh, the passages about the horrors of death. Because, uh, although it's, it's interesting, that it, I, I never thought of this phrase before as I was reading it. Um, it's very graphic. And I never, did you ever, hear, ever think about the phrase, oh, it scared the hell out of you? It's actually a really profound phrase. I never thought about that until this afternoon. I was as, as you know, I said, "Wow, that will scare the hell out of you." And then I thought, "Oh, if it scares the hell out of you, then that might be a good thing to you know to reflect on." Although, as Pema Chodron says, she also isn't big on scare tactics as, as being the the prime motivator, but there's a whole cosmology of hell realms, um, heaven and hell realms in, in Buddhism, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, it gets very graphic. Uh, Who knows? There's all these places in the mind and all these realms of existence, and when you reflect on you creating the reality, in every moment you're creating your reality, why not make it beautiful? Because, as we said, you know, if you've got all this stash inside, even if nobody else knows, you are creating hell for yourself. So whether it's actual or metaphorical, seeing the possibilities and you want to create helps you clean up your act. And then, finally, seeking refuge in bodhicitta with all of these after he scared, scares the hell out of, uh, out of himself. He says, the one, the one saving element is bodhicitta. All the terrible things that, that you might have done can be transmuted, transformed 
when you have this beautiful, pure motivation. From this day I go forth for refuge to Buddhas, guardians of wandering beings who labor for the good of all that lives, those mighty ones who scatter every fear. In the Dharma that reside resides within their hearts that scatters all the terrors of samsara and in the multitude of bodhisattvas. Likewise, I will perfectly take refuge, gripped by dread, beside myself with terror, to Samantrabhadra, I will give myself, and to Manjushri, the melodious and gentle, I will give myself entirely to him whose loving deeds are steadfast, O my guardian Avalokita, I cry out from the depths of misery, protect me now. For if alarmed by common ills, I act according to the doctor's words, the doctor is the Buddha, what he's also sometimes called the, the great physician, what need to speak of what of when I'm constantly brought low by lust and all the, the hundred other torments? And if by one of these alone the dwellers in the world are all thrown down, and if no other remedy exists, no other healing elsewhere to be found, then the words of the omniscient physician uprooting every ill and suffering, the thought to turn on him death ears is raving folly, wretched and contemptible. This span of life and all that it contains, my kith and kin are all to be abandoned. I must leave them setting out alone. What grounds are there for telling friend from foe? And Hannah makes, makes the point that, you know, you think you know who your friends are and who your foes are, but sometimes your friends, the people closest to you, are the ones that you act the most unskillfully with, and they become, not consciously, but unconsciously, but just by agents. They are the agent of your suffering. And your foes, sometimes you learn the most from. You learn about patience and compassion and all of those. So it's not, it's not so easy to say, who's your friend, who's your foe? But if you really are surrendering to the awakened mind, then everyone is your teacher. So, uh, let's just take a moment this time and uh, go inside and do a couple of these last practices. First, with your transgressions, just imagine a supremely wise benevolent being, understanding you, and truly forgiving you, understanding your ignorance, understanding your confusion. It's it's okay. You set your heart in the right direction. 
it's a little bit too late. It's not right now. See the goodness that's inside of it. And realizing that there's not all that much time in this life to really decide to face in that direction and of peace and happiness. And just in the last few moments, you might reflect on some practices for your daily life. What offerings you might bring them to your own practice, perhaps as you meditate, a place of humility and gratitude and devotion. What would you like to sit down, even if nobody is watching you? about in your heart. To offer all the blessings in your life as you practice. And keeping in mind the urgency making this this time clarifying your intention. Why do you stick practice? What's your highest motivation that inspires you? And then to see your practice as something that you're offering not just to yourself but to everyone in the world, to the people you see that day, and the rippling effect the practice has on them, and then they're adding a bit more kindness and caring and guiding the world. Appreciate yourself. Appreciate your hearing the call of and wish yourself in. May I truly awaken. May I feel all for my bits and seeds and share them. And then to extend it to all beings, the idea and all beings of the world.
in the future so we can have a good time and have some discussion and just kind of back into it. Hope you get into it for you. See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.